At Christmas, we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, who we confess as the divine Son of God. The eternal Word become flesh. Um, A simple, spiritual being, that is what God is, we can't see Him, we can't touch Him, became material and concrete in particular. He took on a human body, hair and nails, bones and muscles and joints. And I think uh, today we, we read how this miracle all began. Uh, in the angel's announcement to a virgin, a real particular young girl whose name was Mary. And one of the challenges of this story is that we've all heard it so many times that it's maybe become a bit uh, trite to us, uh, over-familiar. As I prepared for this text, the thing that that made it a little bit easier to me as I reflected on the centrality of of the fact that that Mary was an, uh, an unmarried young girl, a virgin... Uh, probably 12 to 15 years old, is that this is my daughter. (laughs) This is a real concrete girl uh, receiving this stupendous sort of mind-blowing message. And so this is the essence of Christmas, really. Not that God is abstract or theoretical, but that He becomes very concrete in our lives. And that really uh, becomes uh, present to us here in Christ Jesus, where Him who knew no sin became flesh so that He might take our sin to Him and we might become the righteousness of God. So this is God's Holy Word, beginning in Luke's Gospel, page 855. If you're looking in your pew Bibles, uh, Luke's Gospel, verse 26 in chapter 1. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee, a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the same, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. And join me now in our prayer of illumination found in our bulletins. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And ask you to give us your spirit, so that we may understand the fullness of your truth. Amen. Please be seated.
Well, I want to look at three aspects of of Mary's uh, reception of this message this morning, this angelic announcement that comes to her. The focus it does shift to Mary here. And our outline in our bulletin talks about, first, her humble station. Um, second, her virginity, which is really central to this text. And finally, her obedient faith. Her humble uh, virgin believing is Mary. She's humble, she's virgin, and she's believing. And Luke began his story last week with Zechariah and Elizabeth. And uh, the angel coming to the temple to announce the remarkable birth of John the Baptist to an elderly, childless couple. John was to be the forerunner, to the herald. And Luke anchored that account thoroughly in the language and the prophecies of the Old Testament, particularly the prophet Malachi. Uh, to demonstrate the coming of Christ and His forerunner was as planned, as foretold, was the fulfillment of God's promises. And that background is important because when we begin reading in verse 26, the scene shifts. And it's a, it's a dramatic shift. Luke is emphasizing the contrast here. But you see, he opens by saying, in the sixth month, he's referencing back to Elizabeth. So even as he shifts scenes, he wants us to know that this is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. And he closes this episode referring again to the sixth month as a sort of a bracket here. The same angel, the same messenger sent from the same Lord, Gabriel, now comes not to the temple in Jerusalem, the capital city where you would expect a king to be born, but he goes to a city in the far north, Nazareth of Galilee. In John's Gospel, uh, we get a sense of this place when, when John says, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was a backwater. Galilee was a long way from Jerusalem. Later, here in Luke's Gospel, when Peter denies Christ in the courtyard of the high priest's house uh, around Good Friday, he will be recognized as being a northerner, maybe like some of us might recognize southerners, by the way he speaks, probably. You talk like a Galilean. We read that in Mark's Gospel. So these were people from the sticks. They were hayseeds. Not that southerners are from the sticks or hayseeds, mind you. I'm married into a fine southern family. But this sets up a scene of contrast. It's as, it's as though, uh, you know, it's kind of like, uh, this isn't a very sanctified movie, and this is the problem with going off script, right? Like the old movie, the Eddie Murphy movie, 48 Hours, I think it was called. Was that the one where, um, what was the one where he was like, uh, brought out of the gutter into the penthouse, right, in New York City? It's like a movie starting with a penthouse scene and then going to... Uh, the, the darkest, most depressed economic place. It's a study in contrast. Sort of the tale of two cities. And so as we turn to consider Mary in this announcement, it's against this backdrop of this contrast. And the very first thing is really her humble station. And this is my first point. She lives in Nazareth of Galilee. We are told that she's a virgin. She's a young, unmarried maid. Probably around age 12 to 15. She explicitly says uh, she doesn't, hasn't known a man. So her, her virginity speaks not only to her age, her youthfulness, but in this time and place she is literally something to be bought and sold. She has no power. Uh, 
One who has been betrothed at this point, the typical practice was uh, the parents or the groom would engage in the contract and a bride price would be paid. And then there would be a time of preparation, maybe six months or a year or a year and a half for the wedding feast. And during that time, the bride would live in her own home and only go to live with the groom, only uh, confirm and consummate the marriage at the latter point. So that's who Mary is. And this engagement is the first sign that something surprising might happen to her. She's married to Joseph, who is of the house of David. So we've gone from David's royal city to a distant relative of David living in the far north. Here's the slender connection between the temple of our first scene, the royal city, and this young virgin. Mary is engaged. Uh, She's waiting for her life to change. It's a time, personally, for her of expectation. Um, We don't know if she was living in her parents. Maybe she was a servant girl in someone else's house. Um, We're not told what she thinks so much. A little bit we get an insight to how she responds to this message. Um, We're not told about her parents or much about her circumstances, other than these broad uh, brushstrokes. But, you know... I was thinking about my own daughter as I reflected on this text. And about a month ago, some friends of my daughter, uh, friend's family, invited her to go to New York City. And this was kind of exciting. It was the first time Claire was going to go on an out-of-town trip, uh, not with her family. And um, the kind of funny thing is, you know, they approached us and said, can Claire go on this trip? So we were involved in the planning a little bit, making sure that everything was going to be safe and taken care of. And, you know, maybe we're 21st century helicopter parents. But the fact of the matter is, Claire isn't an independent person. She's still a member of our household. And we had some responsibility to see that as she becomes a young independent person, she does so in a wise, prudent fashion. To help oversee and safeguard this trip. Even as Mary would have had to have been released from her own family to be betrothed. Mary is not her own person. She's probably, potentially, in a sense, a servant. So isn't it amazing that the word of the Lord comes to someone who's not her her own? She's not in control of herself, not her own property. She's literally been sold into her husband's house. Who knows what she thinks of Joseph? Mary's this kind of young girl. In chapter 3, Luke will give us Jesus' genealogy through Joseph. So we don't get that detail regarding Mary. And Matthew does the same thing. We aren't told anything about her parents or her lineage. He is a son of David through her father in Luke's telling. Adoptively, who becomes her father, Joseph. Now, presumably, Mary, as a cousin of Elizabeth, is likewise, uh, what we have already learned about Elizabeth, a daughter of Aaron, that is a Levite. So she's of a priestly tribe. Again, how surprising. And and this is how Mary responds, right? Um, Her response is similar to Zechariah's response, but it is different in a telling fashion. Uh, Zechariah, when he encounters an angel in the temple, immediately thinks of Malachi, that uh, we were listening to Handel's Messiah on the way into church today, Luke and I, and, you know, the angel will come and purify the temple. God's fire is going to blast out all the sinners, and Zechariah is terrified, right? That's Zechariah's fear and trembling here. Mary's is a little bit different. 
It's like, wait, you talking to me? Like, who, me? It's like, surprise. And the angel responds to her concern. Do not be afraid, for you have found grace. You have found favor with God. He repeats, as it were, his original greeting to make clear that he's there to bestow grace on her. It's like someone ringing the doorbell. A lot of us work at home. I work at home sometimes, but probably a lot of you work at home sometimes now. And you get that doorbell in the middle of the day and you're like, like who knocks on doors these days, right? Like, go answer the door. Who's bothering me? And maybe it's a package or something, right? But like, is this person going to ask me to sign up for some political party or make a donation? But if someone says, no, I'm just delivering these flowers. You're like, I got a gift. Surprise. The angel says, I'm here with a gift. That's what grace is. And before we get to what that gift is, the child that she's going to have, which is sort of a mixed blessing, right? What that gift is, note that the gospel story begins with grace. It begins with a word from God. Say, don't be afraid. I'm here to bless you. I'm here for your good. You and I, dear sisters and brothers, are Christians because we have been given a gift. We weren't born into a Christian home. Maybe we were. But the Holy Spirit called to us there, out of that place. If we were born into a Christian home, many of us probably know friends, family members who were also born into Christian homes who are no longer believers in our Lord Jesus Christ. We've been given a gift. Faith. Our faith is a gift worked in us through this same Holy Spirit who uses means. He uses the Word of God, uses preachers and churches and pastors, these means of God's grace in our life to grant us the favor, the kindness, the grace of God in Christ. And so as we come at Christmas time and celebrate this feast, this evangelical feast, we want to remember that the gospel is a gift. A very simple takeaway. Second point here, and it's really dominant as we read how Luke tells the story, is that Mary, right off the bat, is defined and described as a virgin. Three times in this text, she's called a virgin. In fact, Luke, the narrator, calls her a virgin. Gabriel calls her a virgin. And she calls herself a virgin. The first words describing Gabriel's mission is that he comes to a virgin. It's the very heart and soul of our story. Because the gift that Mary will receive is a child. And we know that in the natural order of things, women who haven't known men don't have children. The angel says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. This is the grace. This is the gift that the angel has come to deliver to Mary. Now, how many women in the Bible do we meet who are barren? Just in the last chapter, right, Elizabeth? Who bear the sorrow of longing for years of their married lives for a child. In fact, as we prepare for lessons and carols next week, we celebrated our 15th anniversary. One of our former members wrote us a note like, I'll always remember that Sunday, that lessons and carol service, where I was asked to read about the barren woman who had children, about the virgin having a child, because I was struggling with having a baby at that point in my marriage. And God comforted me with that text. And she's gone on now to have children. But that's a memory from 10 years ago. 
Elizabeth is just the latest in a long line going back to Sarah, then Rebecca, then Rachel. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and He's the God of their barren wives, Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel. Isn't that amazing? How common barrenness is in the Bible. The theme of barrenness in the Old Testament is a theme of cursedness. Elizabeth said, the Lord has taken away my shame. This is my fault. I'm a sinner. The book of Proverbs says, Sheol, hell, is like a barren womb. That's not comforting words for women who can't have babies. A land never satisfied with water and full of fire that never says enough. Man and woman, Adam and Eve, were created in God's image to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the condemnation of their sin includes the curse that the woman's pain would be multiplied in childbearing. And that only in pain would she be able to bring forth children. And that includes the pain of not being able to be fruitful in that way. In a sense, one of the central, primary, highest purposes of creation, one of the greatest blessings of men and women is to bring forth children like their Creator God in His image. And this great high point is inverted by sin. It's made a a source of sorrow and sadness. And this is where it's amazing, the centrality of a virgin here. The gospel is the promise of a child and a seed to Adam and Eve in the face of this curse. A child who will crush the head of that serpent, who will defeat death. Is it any surprise that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is also the saving God of barren women, of Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel? The God of barren women having children. He reverses curses. That's what he does. And this grace, this favor, reaches its climax, reaches its fulfillment, its highest point, in a child granted to an unmarried girl, a virgin. Mary is not only not barren, she's the furthest thing from being barren. She's a virgin who's never gone one day wondering why she doesn't have a child, given a child. She's never known barrenness. Perhaps she knew of Elizabeth's shame, her cousin's shame. Perhaps she had family members and loved ones. But the grace-filled child in Mary's womb stops the curse dead in its tracks before it can even take root in her. So the first and the greatest contrast between John the Baptist and Jesus, between John and the Old Covenant and Jesus and the New Covenant, between the last prophet and the first prophet, the one in whom flows the blood of the New Covenant, is in their mothers. The one is born to an elderly barren woman and the other is born to a virgin. This grace, this favor of a virgin with child, the anti-barren woman is surpassed by an even greater grace and favor of the Son Himself whom she bears. You shall call His name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to Him the throne of His father David. And He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of His kingdom there will be no end. We sort of glide over these words pretty easily because we hear them every Christmas time. But just notice and pay attention, the focus here is on the promise to David. The focus here is very much Old Testament centric. Second Samuel 7, 
David receives a covenant promising that he will have a child, that his house will be an eternal house, an eternal rule and reign. And the fact that there's a child is surely stupendous, but the angel tells Mary what his name is, Jesus. Now in Matthew's gospel, we learn, and the angel explains the name to Joseph, for he will save his people from his sins. The name Jesus means to save. I love that line. That's one of my favorite lines in the gospel. That he will save his people from his sins. But it's kind of funny because Matthew's not really, you know, the angel's not really just speaking to, to Joseph. Those words are recorded a lot for us too. There were a lot of Greek readers of Matthew's gospel who didn't know what Jesus meant, right? So that's parenthetically put in there. Just like Emmanuel is explained later in Matthew's gospel, God with us. Matthew is very mindful of his Greek audience. But remember what Luke told us he's doing last week. Luke said, I've gathered the sources. I've talked to the eyewitnesses. And when Mary thinks back, probably telling him how this story went down, as he hears the song of the Magnificat in the coming weeks, the song of Simeon, the song of Zechariah, these, these great celebrations of the coming of the Christ child that we will reflect on over the coming weeks. Luke records very much a first-person account of what it would have been like for a Palestinian Jew longing for the son of David to come. This Savior King will be great. The focus is on Jesus as the Messiah. And when the Lord promised David that eternal house, He said that He would make His name great. And David replied that the Lord is a great God who does great things. There's lots of greatness going on. And so... This child, this son born in the virgin's womb, is great. He's a mega son. Which leads Mary to ask an obvious question. So the angel has come with grace. I'm here to do something kind to you. Don't worry. This isn't uh, law. This is gospel. This isn't bad news. This is good news. And then he tells her what that kindness is. Your son is going to be a great son. Like, congratulations, mom. Your kid's going to go far. He's going to be a savior. He's going to be a savior of his people. He's going to be a king. He's going to rule forever. And then Mary emphasizing her virginity, but also wondering at this amazing news that she's hearing. Again, I keep picturing my daughter hearing this message from an angel upstairs in her room while she's doing homework. It kind of freaks me out a little bit. How? How can this be? I'm a virgin. Now, when Zechariah asked his question in the last first part of this chapter, it was out of unbelief. Now, you might say, well, they both ask questions. What's wrong? Zechariah gets penalized and, and Mary gets celebrated. But, but Zechariah's question said, how shall I know this? And then he proceeded to list a number of reasons why it was unlikely to happen. I'm an old man. My wife's advanced in years. Zechariah was asking for a sign. Give me proof and I'll believe. Mary, in contrast, responds by acknowledging the mystery, her lack of understanding of God's word, and assumes it's going to occur. How does it happen? How? Two very, very different questions. How will I be with child? It could perhaps mean that she would have a child once she got married with Joseph. It's not clear when this is going to happen. It's not clear that, you know, this will be a miraculous birth. Should I go ahead and get married to Joseph? Do I need to go marry someone else who's going to be a king? I don't know. 
So the clarification Mary receives is important. The angel answers her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. In other words, the child she will have will not be a natural child. He will not have a human father. He will be a direct work of God, a supernatural miracle in the conception of this child. The power of the Most High will accomplish this thing. The angel confirms, uh, with reference to the angel's message to Sarah in Genesis 18 that we preached on just a few weeks ago, that this is something impossible. Were it not done by God. Nothing will be impossible with God. And again, just as the gospel comes in grace to a humble woman, comes with a gift, so also the gospel begins with a supernatural event. God's salvation is impossible apart from miracles. Now there's all sorts of arguments back and forth the last hundred years. We call this... uh, conversation, sort of apologetics, defending the truth of what we read in these pages. And of course, modern science rejects this. Like, it's impossible, right? It's impossible for a woman to have a baby without a man. Unless, you know, we have scientific ways of doing it now, but we're still not doing it without a male sperm, without some scientific instrumentation, procedures, whatnot. But it's not like our text didn't know it was impossible. That's sort of the whole point. But nothing is impossible with God. And we forget that that's not just about Jesus or his conception or his birth or his resurrection, which is impossible. Which part of the impossible gospel do you not want to believe this week? We don't get to strip away like Thomas Jefferson. Go see to Monticello, the New Testament Bible he cut up where he cut out all the miracles. Just give me the rules for living. That's Christianity I get behind. Yeah, that's why people weren't so hip on voting for Thomas Jefferson lots of times. The essence of the gospel is this supernatural miracle. And to top it all off, the angel gives her what she didn't ask for. The angel gives her a sign. Isn't that kind? Your cousin, Elizabeth, is barren. She's having a child. She's old. That's a miracle. The miracle in you is greater. I love, again, the contrast between Luke's gospel and Matthew's gospel. We have two witnesses, brothers and sisters. Just as a reminder, there's a wonderful book by one of my heroes of the last century, a man named J. Gresham Machen. He wrote this book on uh, the virgin birth, defending it from the text, from the history, and defending the fact that it was the original gospel message. You know, people say, well, if, if the virgin birth is so important, why doesn't Paul ever preach about it? Why don't the apostles ever talk about it in the book of Acts? We only have two mentions of it in Matthew and Luke. And I'm like, we have two witnesses. <laughs> What a wonderful thing. We have two different historical sources bearing witness to this same fact. That the birth of Christ was remarkable and that Mary did not know a human father. Luke is not giving us here a story packaged for Romans and Greeks. He's not translating his terms. The songs of of, um, Zechariah, the Magnificat, talk about Jesus being a Jewish king forever. Do you think they were written after 70 AD when Jerusalem was completely destroyed and the Jewish state essentially ceased to exist? 
A lot of skeptics here said, well, the virgin birth, that's a belief that probably came, came up in the Christian church hundreds of years later, the time of Nicaea, to, to approve this new invented idea that Jesus was a divine being. We'll, we'll create a virgin birth. And Machen's argument is, we have two witnesses from before 70 AD, eyewitnesses to this event. It's hard to make up stories like this and not be called a fool when the people are still alive. Matthew helpfully unpacks what Luke here just leaves probably more in the words or recollections of of Mary because he spoke with her in all likelihood. But Matthew unpacks, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name, which means God with us. Matthew quotes Isaiah. Luke doesn't bother. He's just, you know, Mary probably didn't think of the prophet Isaiah that day. But as Matthew composes it, he gives us that further clarity, that multiple perspective on this birth. And it's an important reminder for us as we see the centrality of virginity in the only two accounts we have of the nativity of Christ. Mark doesn't talk about it. John doesn't talk about it. But Matthew and Luke talk about it. They both talk about her virginity in different ways. So we have two corroborating witnesses. And the fruit for us today, what does it matter, brothers and sisters, is that God is with us. God is with us. You notice that the Holy Spirit brings about God in the flesh. And then Jesus says, when I go, I'm going to send you my Holy Spirit. The Spirit brings the Son to dwell on earth in our flesh. And then when the Son goes, He sends His Spirit to dwell with us now in our hearts. What wonderful comfort that God is with us, even as God was in the Son, hanging at Calvary for our sins. He's still with us. And this brings us to our third and final point. In conclusion, Mary's faith. Mary replies finally to this message, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She might not have had the authority to say that. Technically, she was probably the servant of her husband who had already paid the bride price. She might have been the servant of her parents in her home, doing whatever domestic industry she was tasked with. She might have been a servant in someone else's house. This confirms that her question earlier was not an unbelieving, but a believing question. And Elizabeth later will say that you believed, blessed are you who believed when you heard this word. And I love Luther's sermon on this. He recounts that uh, St. Bernard, uh, an early saint in the church, had said that there are three miracles in this story. There's the miracle that God and man are joined together in this child, the miracle of the incarnation. And he says there's also a different miracle that a mother should remain a virgin and have a child. That's a miracle. But the third miracle is that Mary should have such faith to believe that this mystery would be accomplished in her. And he adds that the faith of Mary is not the least of these three miracles. It's not a small miracle, brothers and sisters, that we would believe. The most amazing of all is that this maiden should credit the announcement that she, rather than some other virgin, had been chosen to be the mother of God. It is the Spirit who works not only this miracle in her womb, but who works the miracle of faith in her heart. Paul calls himself a slave. We clean it up a little bit and call him a bondservant. In our catechism, when we're asked, what's our only comfort in life and in death? Many of you know the answer. I am not my own, but belong body and soul to my faithful Savior. Mary's life was not easy. 
In fact, you might say that this was the gift that kept on giving in a bad way. She's there at the cross. She saw the flesh from her womb torn to pieces. Dying is last. It's never good to be a parent and see your child die or suffer. Blessed is he, Elizabeth says, who believed, is she, who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Luke puts the word of God central and our faith in the word of God. The greatest comfort, the greatest gift we have in life, brothers and sisters, is echoing Mary. Behold, I'm your bondservant. It doesn't mean our life will be easy, but it means that we'll have the greatest comfort of all, that God will be with us each and every step of the way. And as we breathe our dying breath, we will know that even then we are seated in the heavenly places with our risen Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Merciful God, we thank you for your Son. We thank you that as we turn to this meal and we celebrate his flesh and blood, it is the flesh and blood of a true man who took on and received, was received and taken on by the eternal Son of God. That this is the blood of the new covenant, the blood of the promise of our salvation, our resurrection, is found in the one who took on human flesh to save us. He has redeemed all that that he took on. He has redeemed sinful man. He has redeemed our barrenness, giving life and life abundantly. May we know him more and more each day. May our faith grow through the confirmation of this sermon and this sacrament and this season of feasting and celebrating the gospel. In Christ's name, amen.